chat. I'm your host Samuel Davies. In this episode I speak with Paul Turner, International Director and Co-Founder of Food for Life Global. We speak about how Food for Life Global pivot in times of crisis to support the communities affected by the likes of the 2004 tsunami as well as the 2010 Haiti earthquake. We speak about how you can move operations, how you can upskill and develop your operations using technology to provide more for your beneficiaries. We had a pretty good connection, especially despite the distance between us, but it did fall to a couple of times. We've cleared all that up, so it shouldn't affect your listening pleasure. And Paul is a very articulate, clear and interesting chap. So without further ado, here is Paul Turner speaking to me about the work of Food for Life Global. Delighted to be joined today by Paul Turner, founder of Food for Life Global, an NGO that feeds millions of children nutritious meals daily. Paul, welcome to Charity Chats. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate the offer. And we're, we find ourselves uh, we're speaking, of course, via Zoom today uh, in different countries altogether, different continents, in fact. I'm in Poland and you're in Colombia. Amazing. Yeah, high, high up in the Andes Mountains. We're actually three kilometers above sea level so the air is a little thinner but it's very clean is it i bet it is i bet it is it's fantastic and and um maybe could you start by telling uh, us about um food for life global you you feeding so many children how how do you go about doing this and and what's that impact on, on making a more positive world do you think well, we have a long history. You know, Food for Life actually dates back to this mid-70s. It started off as a village feeding program in India, in West Bengal, India. When um, my yoga teacher, he, he saw some children fighting with dogs over scraps of food. And he was so saddened by this, he couldn't believe it. He says, this is, this is crazy. This should not happen. So he then called his, his students, his yoga students, and said, look, we have to start a food relief project here. We have to feed these children. So essentially that was the roots of the project. And it, you know, very quickly it started spreading in different parts of the world. I got involved as a volunteer in 83. And um, my, my history is that I was actually a monk for 14 years of my life. So from the age of 19 to 33, I lived a very simple monastic lifestyle. And my first service in the ashram was actually feeding people. So I learned how to cook uh, large quantities and so on. So that's sort of the roots of Food for Life. And then 10 years forward in 1993, I was requested by uh, a, one of my mentors to help to work with him to set up a headquarters for this project. Because up until then, it was still a very grassrootsy type of project. Um, there was no like systems in place. There was no consistency. It was sort of like everyone was winging it, so to speak. So I, I wrote a training manual and I started to <clears throat> formulate some sort of system, some sort of standardizations and so on. And I also helped to set up an, a whole bunch of new projects. I traveled around Eastern Europe, Western Europe. Um, and so fast forward up to, so then we established the actual headquarters. We called it Food for Life Global in 1995 
And then up until now, uh, 2020, we have over 200 affiliates uh, under the Food for Life Global banner that are serving on average up to two million meals every day. And they're freshly cooked vegan meals, which is quite astonishing. So we're very good at what we do. We can feed more people for less money than any other food relief organization in the world. And on top of that, it's freshly cooked and it's vegan. So it's very nutritious. Um, and we're operating in 60 countries. So we're, <clears throat> we have a lot of experience being that we have such a diverse um, you know, uh, exposure. We're all, all, over the, all over the world. We've come across all sorts of situations. We've responded to emergency uh, disaster reliefs like the, the great tsunami of 2004, the Haiti earthquake of 2010, the tsunami in Japan in 2011, we were first responders providing freshly cooked vegan meals to the, the survivors. Um, so in terms of actually, you know, how we do it, it's really just uh, experience. We, we've just learned along the way uh, to the point where now in India, where we have our biggest projects, we have extremely efficient systems set up. We have these super kitchens, which quite literally, you know, one kitchen alone sometimes can feed up to 60 to 70,000 meals a day. We have um, pressure cookers, rice, rice cookers that can produce 700 liters of rice in 15 minutes. Uh, chapati making machines that can produce 10,000 chapatis an hour. So, you know, <laughs> so we're good at what we do. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was that process like? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're having to, like any big business, really, you're having to um, really uh, go, go for big volume very quickly. So using kind of more technology. Was that a, very, was that a slow process over those years? Or, or it was. Have... Yeah, up until like the early 2000s, like 2005, we were still pretty much, you know, a standard sort of food relief operation where we have, you know, we had our standard kitchen, so to speak, producing large quantities, but not massive quantities. Uh, you know, some of the bigger kitchens would do 10,000 meals a day um, and maybe 15,000 meals. But now we have kitchens that do 70,000 meals. And in order to reach that sort of volume, you do need to have much more sophistication uh, in terms of like your equipment, you know, the efficiency of the equipment. And then you have a time slot as well. Like we have to produce a certain amount of meals in a certain amount of time. <clears throat> so, you know, it gradually, it gradually scaled. Now, Keep in mind that, yes, we have these sophisticated kitchens in parts of the world, mostly in India, and um, but in many other parts of the world, we just have, we're working from small kitchens, mm. and maybe that project is serving a few hundred meals a day. So we do have very small projects, and we have much bigger projects. It, it, it varies quite a lot. Does it rely heavily on a, a, a kind of a bank of volunteers in all of these uh, countries or, or is it kind of a mixture of paid staff and volunteers or how does that work? Yeah, it's a mix. Um, we do, I, I would say that the majority of our projects are volunteer run uh, for the most part, a big percentage. But in India, where we have these very sophisticated kitchens, like technically they're like a super kitchen, uh, we do have security staff, we have truck drivers, 
we have, you know, we have a whole bunch of people that we need to employ to make this system work because um, the dependencies are so extreme. And literally, as I mentioned, like one kitchen alone is serving 70,000 children a day and we can't miss we can't misstep on that. So we have to make sure that we have everything in place. People are reliable, they're consistent. We can't have someone, you know, some volunteer saying, hey, I can't come in today. We have to have those people on staff every single day to meet those numbers. And so you have this consistent need that you're, you're providing uh, food to so many people on a consistent basis. When the emergencies happen, when, you, when you've had to kind of step up to support another group of people, how does that work? Do you have to transfer existing operations to an emergency or do you, have a, do you, do you need to create an, a second um, kind of group uh, to, to support them? Yeah, it's a good question. And in fact, that we have actually struggled in the past, even though we've been very effective, it has been a challenge for us. For example, the great tsunami of 2004, the Boxing Day tsunami, which wiped out, you know, vast tracts of land. I think it killed a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people, uh, extremely damaging. Um, so that particular response, we literally had in the southern part of India, there's a city called Chennai. And many people may be aware of it. It's right at the bottom of India. Um, so we actually have a food flow project there, and it just so happened that you know that was one of the one of the coastlines that were hit was right where Chennai is. So we just happened to have a team there that was already cooking, um, you know, food for a local gathering, and they decided, oh my God, this tsunami. Let's let's not feed the local people here. Let's take it to the beachside and actually feed. The villages you know people that have just been hit by the tsunami so we were literally the first responders to the great tsunami of 2004 we were feeding people the same afternoon the actual tsunami hit um so in that case you know again it's like it was sort of luck luck of the draw in the sense that we already were sort of set up we had a project and we were feeding people and we just okay let's take the meals and take it to the coastline and start feeding people um, but in typically what we would do is we would ship equipment or we would purchase equipment and we would sort of basically set up an infrastructure on the spot. Like when we went to Haiti, Haiti was another crazy situation where we, we flew in managers from overseas and volunteers from overseas. And we worked with the local community, the local volunteers, they really didn't have much facilities. So we, we actually purchased cooking equipment and supplies. We even purchased a vehicle so that's that's sometimes typically what happens uh, what we're looking to do going forward is to build an actual emergency infrastructure and have have like emergency relief trucks mobile kitchens strategically located around the world so that when an emergency does hit we have the infrastructure in place we can respond immediately we don't have to like scramble <music> staff and volunteers in these emergency situations are you able to support them with you know uh, kind of me their mental health because presumably they'll be seeing things that are quite harrowing and disturbing and upsetting yeah it is that definitely is a challenge particularly the scenario in sri lanka so regarding the the great tsunami that hit in 2004 our main effort although we had relief efforts in 
in Indonesia and you know various parts of Asia, Eastern Southeast Asia, our main focus we set up camp in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka was very heavily hit. We did have already a project there that we could like a base we could work from. So we ended up bringing like 50 volunteers from around the world and we set up kitchens in different parts of the island and we had the villagers you know even help us cutting the vegetables and preparing the meals and then you know we were feeding the people and obviously because of the devastation they'd lost their houses so literally people were living in encampments like temporary campsites in tents and whatever maybe abandoned schools and so on and so we would basically just set up a kitchen right there in the school and just start feeding people every day and and everyone would help us so it was quite efficient um but in terms of the actual mental challenge yeah we saw a lot of uh a, a, a lot of devastation uh we, we heard a lot of very sad stories people were coming up to us telling us how they lost their wife their brother their husband their children just was you know float, floated away um and so we encouraged them you know with with a with a hug with with a meal with a smile we even did some uh, meditation with them. We would do like, um, we sit down and have, do some, of the, some of the volunteers were like professional musicians. So we'd play like music. We have like little music groups and that really helped a lot. So we'd have like little parties. We'd, we'd feast and we'd have music and, and dancing and singing. And that really helped them a lot. <laughs> differently in in uh, amongst different populations you're um you're working across 60 countries you've got projects 60 countries so what what general challenges have you found in delivering your projects in some of these most desperate areas of the world at times in some cases where there's an urgent level of uh, immediate need and what challenges are specific to your projects do you think and how are you overcoming all of these challenges typically what we do is we we always cook according to local taste so we're very careful to like you know adjust our menu so to speak according to the local needs but we always make sure it's plant-based so if they like a particular dish we'll like veganize it we'll plant you know we'll turn it into a plant-based version of that dish that they like and that works well no one complains i mean we never have any problems with that because at the end of the day we're giving them a delicious meal with a smile and they're like Thank you very much. You know, they, they can see the love and respect that we have in our, in our hearts and they welcome us. We never have anyone saying, oh, this is not what I want to eat. I mean, that just never happens. Mm. And logistically, you know, some of the challenges that we come up against are obviously in emergency situations, the hygienic issue, because our infrastructure just, you know, so in such a mess and uh, we have to sort of create the environment where people can eat in a peaceful and a clean, you know, sort of a clean environment. So that is always a challenge. Other than that, sometimes it's political challenges, wherein, and this happened early on in the, in the evolution of the project, where maybe some political leaders didn't like the fact that it was vegetarian or vegan. Right. And they challenged us on that. So we had to like sort of step carefully around that and explain to them that this is we're not advocating that you have to give up meat you know if that's part of your culture we're just this is what we're offering and it's free and so we would have those sometimes but it, it's pretty rare all in all 
we don't have too many challenges uh, because people welcome it. This is what we speak about a lot in, in terms of the, the advocacy side of our project. We are very good at what we do in terms of feeding people. We can feed, as I said, feed more people for less money than anyone. And it's really freshly, it's freshly cooked, it's very healthy. Um, but on top of that, our main mission, mission is to unite the world through food. Because we believe that food is a great communicator and it can break down all the barriers. And so all of the divisiveness that we see in the world today can literally dissolve before our eyes with the sharing of, of pure food, plant-based meals prepared with loving intention. So that's a very important part of our mission that we wanna communicate that idea that food is a very powerful communicator and it has the ability to bring us all together as one global family. Has COVID-19 affected uh, the work that you do over the last few months? And uh, how are you developing your organizational strategy to work effectively in a post-COVID-19 world? Yeah, uh, that has been a bit of a challenge, particularly with our projects where we were feeding children at school. So like in India, where we have our bigger projects, the super kitchens, 90% of those projects are providing meals at underprivileged schools. So the government has a list of schools in their system where underprivileged children are, you know, attend. So they're like low-income children. So they tell us, they actually tell us, okay, these are the schools we want you to feed. So then we go feed those, we provide meals at those schools. So now the schools are, sh are shut. Uh, we had to redirect our, our efforts elsewhere. So now we're actually still doing the same numbers. If not more in India, uh, but we're directing them to slum areas, poor villages, you know, places like that where there is a need, but we're just not going to the school. So it's, it's the same, we're basically reaching the same people, the same children, just in a different situation. In other countries, it's similar, only that, um, you know, we're always trying to work at the local government to find out where the, where the most need is. And so we'll you know, we'll address that need. Uh, Post-COVID, I, I, I can only see, you know, the positive side of COVID in, is, is, is that it's definitely making people more conscious of uh, disease and, and, and bacteria and, you know, the spreading of germs and things like that. So obviously, I think not just Food for Life Global, but people in general are going to be much more cautious about how they handle food, how they interact with people. And that's a good thing. I mean, that could be a very positive thing. So we're very careful, very conscious, very respectful of other people's uh, health. So that's a positive. So I think that that's a good takeaway. Other than that, um, I'm hoping that it also moves people to have more respect for the environment to have more sense of, you know, a more sense of unity that, you know, we're all in this together. So we're hoping that, that they're the positives that will come from all of this. And, and that in turn will enhance our project, our, our mission. And, and presumably if you've got volunteers and staff um, kind of in a face-to-face -face scenario with, with lots of people, part of your thinking, I suppose, is it's protecting them as well from uh, COVID-19, is it? Yeah, of course, of course. It's it's 
we're being very careful and we're making sure that, so we're following all the rules, you know, as requested. It doesn't stop what we're doing. If people need to eat every day, people need nutrition, people need nutrition for mind, body and soul. And people need to feel connected and respected and united. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't really change anything for us. What work is your organisation doing to deal with the systemic issues in the countries in which you work in order to bring about a long-term change to those you're currently supporting? Our message is universal and it's always on point. I mean, the idea is that we want to see a united world and we believe that food, particularly plant-based food, when it's prepared with loving intention, intention essentially is one of the ingredients, we believe that has the power to just bring everyone together. And if everyone feels a sense of unity, things like hunger would disappear overnight. Racism, these things which divide us, we just dissolve very, very simply. It doesn't change. It doesn't change anything for us. Our message is universal. It's always timely. It's always relevant. And in terms of like the systematic issues that we see at the end of the day, what we're offering at Food for Life Global is a way to, you know, nourish and bring everyone together on the one platform, you know, as one global family around a dinner table, we're all family, we're all earthlings. Let's enjoy this meal. We can we can disagree politically, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, we're all we're all brothers and sisters. I suppose it makes sense to me that if you're if you if you're encouraging people to sit down and eat together, then then that could certainly um, lead to conversations between people that wouldn't normally you know spend any exactly. time together. I actually wrote a book called Food Yoga, and this book uh, talks about the more subtle aspect of food and the power of the power of intention and how food can not only nourish our body but our mind and our consciousness can actually raise our consciousness make us more aware more loving more compassionate so food has that power to transform consciousness to literally transform us physically as well and um, that's an important part of the mission of food for life global it's not simply about feeding bellies it's about transforming consciousness through the non-sectarian universally accepted palatable you know nature of food delicious food cooked with love um so yes and in that book i talk about how it's a very sad situation today that the mothers of the world have lost control of the dinner table so now you have families eating separately in their rooms eating in front of a television and they're not really communicating. They're not really connecting as a family around that meal. And that's really sad. So I feel like that's a big problem in society today. Then food is the most important thing because, and a, and a mother's control of the dinner table is critical for the health and welfare of the family, the family unit. I mean, there'll be, there'll be some fathers listening to this thinking, I, I do the cooking. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I am. But yeah. And uh, the dad's, the dad's, the dad should get that as well, but you know, you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, obviously there are some men that cook. In fact, I I do most of the cooking at home, so you know I can. <laughs> but I'm not offended by that statement. There's one other project I have initiated, which I think may be interesting for your listeners. So, 
As I mentioned, you know, Food for Life is very, very good at what it does in terms of cost efficiency. So a few years ago, I had an epiphany and I realized that we could leverage that cost efficiency and bring it to the, to the marketplace as a digital asset. So I actually founded a social enterprise called Feed Om. And Feed Om is selling what we call the Om Guarantee Certification. Essentially, it's a certification that a company can put on their product or service for doing a measurable social good. So these Om Guarantee Certifications, they sell for 25 cents. And so a company can purchase or align their product or service with a set number of Om Guarantee Certifications. And therefore, when their customers buy that product or service, they can say with confidence to their, pro to their customers, not only do you get a great, great product or service with these features, but you just fed five children. You just fed a hundred children. You just fed a thousand children. So it's a measurable social impact that they can be certified for. So it's a very, very wonderful way for, for socially responsible companies to give back to the community and at the same time get something, a digital asset of value that they can add to their branding. So it's a win-win for them. It's a win-win for the children who get the meals. It's a win for our charity. So that's called the OM Guarantee Certification. And your listeners can find out more about that if they run a company or they know uh, owners of socially responsible companies, they can let them know about it. It's omguarantee.com. Paul Turner, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. big thank you there to Paul for his time. I enjoyed hearing about how Food for Life Global have developed their operations along with their affiliates to serve 2 million meals a day. It's a phenomenal effort for people in some of the poorest deprived countries in the world. It sounds like Food for Life Global are finding ways of combining paid and voluntary staff effectively and pairing this human effort with technology to deliver in a bigger way than ever for the people they seek to help. I also like Paul's point about food being the great communicator. We're seeing more and more coverage here in the UK and the developing countries around the world about the poor food culture many countries have, a sign of increasing inequality in these developed, wealthier countries, with so many adults and children either overweight or obese. We also see here in the UK that many people are having to resort to food banks. So whether it's not enough food or poor quality food, these are global issues in both developing and developed countries, highlighting inequalities in society. And it's vital that the charity sector is helping to remind us of these. Charity Chat will continue to add a voice wherever we can to these issues. Paul also mentioned the OM Guarantee Certification. This sounds like an interesting cause relating marketing uh, opportunity and fundraising initiative please do find out more if you're interested by going to our website where we have links to this and more information about food for life global i hope you enjoyed this episode please let let us know uh, what you thought by contacting us through our website charitychat.org.uk or through our presence on social media twitter linkedin and facebook it's just left for me now to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design at charitychat.org.uk, RR Yard Photography for the lovely pro bono images on our website, 
and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from me. Continue to do what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.